CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Of all the adversaries the United States faces on the world stage, few loom as large as the Islamic Republic of Iran. Since the revolution over four decades ago, Iran has been a relentless threat to both America and our allies, causing regional havoc in the Middle East and exporting terrorism throughout the world. In this special edition of Hold the Line, we take a deep dive into the continued threat posed by the Islamic Republic of Iran. Welcome to this special edition of Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. Who do we have to worry about on the world stage? What adversaries come to mind? Our biggest single challenge is no doubt China, but for many that is still, on a military level at least, a distant threat and hopefully one we can avoid. China is a competitor on its economy and on its political uh, push for hegemony. But when we, thought, when we talk about terrorism and the prospect of imminent violence, Iran comes to mind right away, the greatest state sponsor of terror in existence. The Iranian, uh, the Iranian regime has been exporting terror and using proxies in the region for decades to attack U.S. and allied interests. Now, let's do a quick review of where we were, and then we'll talk about where we are, and part of the show will be, of course, where we're going when it comes to dealing with the Iranian regime. Under the Trump administration, we had a back out from the Iran nuclear deal negotiated by the Obama administration. We were told that would lead to chaos. We were told that would lead to greater instability throughout the Middle East. Did that happen? No, it did not. Under the Trump administration, a decision was made to eliminate Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force, the IRGC. And here's a guy who was known, he was head of the entire IRGC, Here's the guy who was known to have been directly involved in the killing of American soldiers in Iraq, to have orchestrated some of the EFP, explosively formed penetrator attacks, that maimed and killed American soldiers in Iraq, a country uh, that is not Iran, as we all know. So why was he engaged in such operations? Because attacking America and its interests is central to the Iranian regime. We were told that that strike on Qasem Soleimani would lead to a broader conflagration all over the region. Did it happen? No, it did not. Here's how Democrats reacted to Qasem Soleimani's killing. Tragically, his actions now put us on the path to another war. He's been erratic and unsuccessful in almost every previous foreign policy endeavor. This one is the most dangerous of all. We are not safer today than we were before Donald Trump acted. We seem to have accomplished what Soleimani was trying to do, but couldn't. So in death, he's actually accomplished his goal. Picking out a bad guy is not a good idea unless you are ready for what comes next. This is and was an enormous escalation. 
taking out the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Quds Force by the Trump administration was supposed to be something that would start a regional war. You heard people here, bad idea. What did the Iranians do in response? Shelled a U.S. base and then essentially realized that anything further would pose the threat of imminent retaliation from Trump administration, so they did nothing. They didn't actually do the things we were told they would do. It seemed like we had learned a lesson, perhaps by having a strong hand in dealing with the mullahs in Tehran, it was less likely that they would act out in ways contrary to our interests. But then we have, right as I'm, as I'm speaking to you, uh, we have the challenge of Hamas and the fighting going on right now with the Israeli Defense Forces. Who is providing the uh, Palestinian jihadist forces like the Palestinian Islamic Jihad with the rockets that they're firing into Israeli cities? It is in fact the Iranians. Here's a, a Palestinian Islamic Jihad official admitting that Iran under this Biden administration has decided to continue to push missiles to Hamas and Hamas, again, with the change in leadership here in the U.S. in the background of all of this, has decided to go forward and rain down missiles on the state of Israel. Here's what he said. Yes, the Mujahideen using Iranian weapons, uh, the Mujahideen meaning Hamas, the holy warriors of Hamas, as this man says, using Iranian weapons to terrorize the state of Israel. Iran is a bad actor in the region, and once again, it feels it has a freer hand. And if you're wondering what its plans are going forward, here's a recent Reuters headline. Iran has enriched uranium up to 63% purity, according to the IAEA. The Iranians realize that with the change in leadership in the U.S., the whole Western world is on a different footing with regard to how to handle the homicidal regime of the mullahs. And so now we face the possibility of major escalation, continued arming of these militias all across the Middle East, and perhaps a broader conflagration, even a regional war. What can we do to avoid this, and what should we expect going forward? Well, we'll get into that. To fully understand the threat Iran poses to the world, we have to first understand their goals. After the break, Jonathan Shanzer of the Foundation for Defense of Democracy uh, will join us to lay out the aims of the Islamic Republic, so stay right there. For more than four decades now, the Islamic regime in Iran has menaced its neighbors, tire, uh, tirelessly pursued nuclear weapons, and sown terror throughout the world, from Beirut to Buenos Aires. But to what end? Regional hegemony? Religious fundamentalism? All the above? Understanding the goals of the Islamic Republic is a key to understanding the threat it poses. Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy, is a man who understands the goals of Tehran. He joins us now. Good to see you, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be with you. So clearly the mullahs have a, a lot of plans, a lot of goals, but if you could narrow it down to just the, the top goals 
of this regime in Iran, what would they be? What are they trying to accomplish? Well, first and foremost, their goal is survival. They have been uh, under strain from the very get-go in 1979 after the revolution because of their support for terrorism, because of their radical policies. Uh, they've been pressured by the United States and other Western countries off and on uh, for all of its existence. So survival remains key. But beyond that, what they would really like to do is overturn the U.S.-led world order. Uh, they would like to see more revisionist states like Russia and China that are more friendly, uh, to see them emerge as world leaders. And then I think uh, closer to home, they have designs on regional hegemony. They would like to be able to extend their power to all the countries where there are Shiite Muslims around the region and even convert some of the Sunni states to be vassals of Iran as well. The antagonism that they have toward uh, Israel has been central to the Islamic Republic's strategy since the earliest days of the revolution. Death to Israel is a persistent refrain in Tehran. What purpose does that serve as part of Iran's broader goals in the region? Well, you got to remember, first of all, when you talk about that chant of death to Israel, it usually comes alongside death to America. They see Israel as part of the U.S.-led world order uh, and therefore seek to destroy it. It is also, I think, probably worth noting that uh, once upon a time, uh, the country of Iran was aligned with Israel. When it was under the Shah, there were good relations. This regime sees itself as the antithesis of that Shah regime, so they look to overturn that. But for the immediate, the Iranians use terrorist organizations as a means to amass power. And they use those terrorist organizations primarily to target Israel. So we're talking about Hezbollah, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They're even trying to get the Houthis in Yemen and some of these Shiite militias in Iraq and Syria to target Israel. That hasn't happened yet, but it has been a very easy way to galvanize, radicalize groups. Uh, around the region to join their cause. And how would you rate the, the stability of the regime right now? For many years, Jonathan, there's been on and off discussion about perhaps uh, a, a counter-revolution, if you will, uh, that there might be some kind of uh, springing up of democracy. There have been movements to that effect that have been very brutally suppressed. Where does the Iranian regime stand now in that continuum? Look, I think this regime right now is very brittle, um, and it's one of the reasons why re-entering the Iran nuclear deal uh, that the Biden administration, I think, appears to be prepared to do would be a huge mistake because it would offer Iran sanctions relief. It would provide Iran with a cash infusion at a time where their own cash reserves are extremely low. I would estimate that it's probably somewhere around $10 billion, maybe even less than that, which means they're running on fumes economically. Uh, I think socially there are major problems. Uh, the, the minorities are growing in the country and they don't adhere to the ideology of the regime. And then there's also the question of how this regime handled the COVID-19 crisis. They really prioritized the terrorism, uh, the export of terrorism around the region over the, the well-being of their own people. And so it's for that reason we've seen for the last, I don't know, three, four, five years that there have been sporadic protests against the regime out on the streets. This is not a regime that is loved by its own people. And what is the situation of the, the resistance, such, uh, such as it may be, inside of Iran? We often hear about the Iranian people as, uh, in some, the actual population as being 
westernized, even pro-Western in their inclinations, desiring greater freedom and economic prosperity. Why hasn't that been able to overcome some of these oppressive mechanisms and, and be a more effective force inside of Iran, in your opinion? Well, yeah, first of all, you got to remember that Iran is a brutal police state right now. The Islamic Republic completely suppresses its own people. They control uh, the messaging. They control the, the, the basically the lifestyles uh, of, of the people of Iran. Um, I will say that in 2009, amidst what was believed to be a rigged election that brought uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad back to power for a second presidential term, we saw thousands and thousands of people pour out into the streets protesting the regime. Uh, this was a moment where I believe the United States could have asserted itself. Instead, what we saw was then President Barack Obama decided to stand down, elected not to um, directly challenge the regime in Tehran, direct uh, or, or to really try to topple it in any way. I think that was probably the best opportunity we ever had uh, to bring about change in the region. Right now, I don't think there's an appetite for it either, unfortunately. We have many decades of experience at this point dealing with this revolutionary Iranian regime. What's the most effective framework in trying to deal with them, rein them in and bring about change? Well, look, I think there, there are a number of things. One is that we continue to hammer on this point of human rights. Uh, the regime is one of the, the, the greatest violators of human rights in the world, the treatment of its own people. I think it's an important message for us uh, to talk about that so that the Iranian people understand that we support them. It's also important uh, as a means to galvanize international support against the regime. There's also the economic pressure, the sanctions that we have seen in the past, whether it was Bush administration, even the first half of the Obama administration, uh, the Trump administration, maximum pressure campaign, not perfect, but absolutely did the trick in terms of marginalizing the regime, cutting it out from the international trade that it thrives on, uh, cutting off some of its oil revenues or almost all of them in some cases. These are things that have been very, very effective. What we need to not do is to normalize this regime and that is exactly what will unfortunately happen if we head back into this deeply flawed nuclear deal. It will treat Iran as a normal country, and it is decidedly not that. Is that the fundamental misconception, Jonathan, that, that drives the Biden administration, which really feels like a continuation of the Obama administration's foreign policy and even has some of the same top personnel? Is it just their belief that Iran could quickly be or already is in some respect a normal country? I, I think it's fair to ask at this point, what do they not get about the mullahs? Oh, I think they get it. I, I think there are a couple things. One is I think um, this administration and, and the Obama administration wanted to avoid conflict uh, with Iran over its nuclear program at all costs. And so this is an attempt to bribe the regime to stand down on its nuclear program, flood them with cash and hope that they will turn into responsible stakeholders. I think you and I would agree that that is really fanciful thinking, but I, that is, I think, the theory that continues to drive this administration. There's also, I think, a sense that uh, we need to get out of the Middle East. I think you hear it all the time. Uh, isolationists on both left and right are saying that, look, it's time, we have to get out. There's no more that we can glean from this region. We've taken our lumps. And so I think the goal here is for the U.S. to be able to just simply say, 
we solved this problem, even if we didn't, and now we're going to leave. We'll let these guys all sort it out. I think that is a recipe for disaster. It's certainly not American leadership, but if anything, it looks like malpractice on a diplomatic level because I think war would almost certainly follow. And then, of course, America would have to decide whether it wants to get itself dragged in again. We could be preemptive here, and I think the policies that we've had in the past, sanctions, diplomatic pressure, et cetera, these things have all worked. It's unclear why the Biden administration is so eager to overturn what actually has worked in isolating Iran in the past. Jonathan, always good to see you, my friend. Thanks for sharing your expertise. Thanks for having me. The Mullahs in Tehran believe one of the key steps in achieving their goals is the acquisition of a nuclear weapon. So what's the U.S. strategy for preventing a nuclear-armed Iran from becoming a reality? Former Defense Department official Kash Patel joins us next to discuss. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Iran recently took a significant step toward fulfilling its nuclear ambitions, announcing it has enriched uranium up to 60%. While that's still shy of the 90% enrichment that would be needed for the uranium to be considered weapons grade, the move was a clear message to the Biden administration, which is intent on returning to the Iran nuclear agreement. Biden's policy toward Iran is a dramatic departure from the previous administration, whose campaign of maximum pressure had severely damaged the regime internally. So what should we expect in the coming weeks and months as Iran inches toward becoming an actual nuclear power? Joining me now is former senior Defense Department official under the Trump administration, Kash Patel. Kash, good to see you. Hey, Buck, thanks for having me back. Love being on your show. So what is changing now that Biden is in office when it comes to where we are with Iran specifically uh, with regard to its nuclear desires versus where we were when you were uh, at DOD under Trump? Sure, that's, that's a great contrast of two policies that couldn't be more further apart. When we were there, as you stated, we crippled their monetary regime with sanctions, not just against businesses, but against 
terrorists and individuals who threaten global security. When we were in under Trump administration, we also made sure they didn't enrich their uranium because the global state sponsor of terror should not be on the road to a nuclear weapon. That's not good for the world, period. And the most important thing we did not do under the Trump administration is send pallets of cash to the Ayatollah so he could use that money to kill our men and women in uniform. And if we go back into the JCPOA, that's all that's gonna happen is more money goes there, their economy opens up. And look, they've been lying to the Biden administration since day one saying we're not enriching anything, but they can't keep that a secret. I don't even have access to classified information anymore. And you know they're enriching uranium to levels that they promised they would never do if we uh, let up on them. What was the biggest failure of the JCPOA? Or rather, what, what was the, the part of it? If you had to point to one, I'm sure you could point to many places in it that were flawed. <laughs> But what, what would be the first thing you'd want people to know? Because the narrative, you know, if you're a New York Times reader, CNN watcher, what you believe is that Obama had this magical agreement that was going to get the Iranians to play nice and never, never get nukes. What was the reality as you saw it from your senior perch in DOD under Trump? No, that's a great question. And the the, the original sin, if you will, is the fact that they thought the Obama administration, now the Biden administration, thought that they could actually negotiate with the Ayatollah and the Qasem Soleimani's of the world and the Iranian regime. That was the bedrock principle of the JCPOA, that we would get the United States and global powers to force Iran to negotiate because we were gonna be nice to them. That doesn't work when you run your country like you run a terrorist camp writ large and steal from the world and lie to your global colleagues um, at the highest levels. I think that was a single point of failure that they actually were so arrogant that they thought they could get them to negotiate by being nice. The Biden administration is currently negotiating a re-entry into the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, how do you think this goes? And what are some of the concessions you would expect that Biden might at least be asked, his administration might be asked to make in order to get back into an agreement where we would think we'd have the upper hand with the Iranians, but with Democrats in charge, it doesn't always feel like that, does it? No, they're always willing to give away anything. This is a perfect example of the Biden administration's foreign policy. All it is is what did President Trump do? We're gonna do the opposite. That's how you jeopardize the national security of the United States. Trump's policies against Iran worked period. The JCPOA did not work. We've had two experiential runs with that over the last 12 years. So we know it works and we know it doesn't work. And for the Biden administration to be going back to Iran and negotiating with them in this attempted good faith while we Americans are being held hostage in Iran continuously to this day, four years on end, without that even coming up in a point of negotiation first, shows you the seriousness at which the Biden administration says they're not taking this. Just giving us a, a vision into a possible future here, Cash. What does the Middle East look like? What happens? What, what dominoes fall if Iran goes fully nuclear, weaponized, the whole nine yards? And that's, that's, that's a great point. So it, it's not just Iran. Iran is tied to Hezbollah, as you know. It's tied to Yemen, as you know. So they're basically putting a squeeze play on the Middle East from the Mediterranean down to the Arabian Sea with their proxy terrorist groups and they're paying them and training them to do it without any reprisal from any other government. And that's what's gonna continue to happen and what's already happened. You saw the Biden administration reverse the Trump policies in Yemen and you might say, why does that matter? 
Well, Yemen borders one of our greatest allies, the Saudis, and we've stopped giving Saudi Arabia aid because the Biden administration decided to name a terrorist organization that we named federally as an FTO. They decided to reverse it. So the Houthis in Yemen are now no longer a terrorist organization for the American people. It seems the Biden administration foreign policy is really just an extension of the Obama administration's foreign policy. And, and not just because they're both Democrat administrations, there are some holdovers, some very important uh, re returning members from the Obama administration who have a big voice in this officially, and then I think behind the scenes, unofficially, in some ways even more so. In fact, I believe Obama himself behind the scenes is a very important voice in Joe Biden's ear on these matters. What is the, what is the Biden administration trying, what do they think they can achieve? And why do you view that as, as naive? Um, I th what they think they can achieve is success on the failed Obama policy of the JCPOA. And you hit it right on the head. The people that are actually running this, Susan Rice and John Kerry, just to name two examples that are Obama leftovers running the Iran policy for the Biden administration. Um, what they want is to take credit for another agreement and sell it to the world on their watch so they can advertise that they successfully negotiated with Iran. That's the fundamental point where myself and President Trump, when I was running counterterrorism for him, uh, disagreed with them. We don't believe that you can negotiate with these people in good faith because they've shown no good faith. Return one of our hostages or two or three that you still have and you know that you have them. Um, how about you stop funding terrorist organizations and acknowledge the fact that you do harbor terrorism in your borders and without. None of these things, unfortunately, are gonna happen with the Biden regime, because all they're gonna do is talk about how great they are at giving out handshakes and meetings in Europe for the Iranian regime. If you had the ability to advise this administration as you did the last one, uh, what would you want them to do with regard to Iran? Continue our maximum pressure campaign. Reassert the sanctions that they're probably reversing or have already reversed. Name and redesignate terrorist organizations that are terrorists that attack American allies like the Houthis. Redesignate them. And 100% do not re-enter into an agreement in which the Iranian people have already lied to you about in the JCPOA and in their enrichment. And then the enrichment thing is not the only thing that's the problem there. It's also the oil and that's a whole different story but that only gets better once they enter into the JCPOA for Iran and worse for America. Cash Patel, always good to see you, man. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Thanks, Buck. Appreciate it. For decades, death to Israel has been a common refrain among the Iranian people. So what's behind the Islamic Republic's hatred of Israel and its efforts to destroy the Jewish state? David Afoon, editor of the Algaminer, helps us shed some light on that question when we come back. Since taking power in 1979, Iran's Islamic regime has made hatred of Israel one of its central tenets, frequently antagonizing the Jewish state through its proxies in Lebanon and Syria. Until recently, Israel could rely on a solid partner in President Trump, who took a hardline stance against the regime when it came to their sponsorship of terror and their efforts to acquire nuclear weapons. Of course, that all changed with the election of Joe Biden, who appears intent on returning to a policy of appeasement with Tehran. So what does the future hold for the conflict between Israel and Iran specifically, especially under this Biden 
administration in the background of it all. Joining me now is the editor of the Algaminer, David Afoon. David, always good to see you. Likewise, Buck. Let's just start with how the election of Joe Biden, how this administration show, uh, so far has changed the calculus for Israel in terms of uh, how it views the Iranian threat. I mean, look, I think it's fair to say that not just in terms of Israel and, and the beliefs, but in general, when you deal with national security and, 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 and geostrategic questions, um, you know, you can look at every issue by itself and then you can sort of look at the big picture. And in the end of the day, when you have an, an uncompromising administration, an administration that sort of doesn't allow a, a lot of wiggle room for the bad actors, it's sort of like a dam that's holding back, you know, the, 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 the world's bad actors. Um, but when there are holes that are poked in that dam, when there's a sort of weakness that sense, when there's sort of more of an equivocating, compromising position, um, which I think is, is, is what so far the Biden administration has, has telegraphed around the world, um, you start to see people coming out of the woodwork, woodwork. You start to see the bad actors coming out of the woodwork. And, you know, it's really no coincidence that, you know, in the months uh, since the Biden administration has come to office, you see some of the hottest conflict zones, specifically in the Middle East, um, basically just uh, coming, you know, coming alight, you know, uh, setting fires blazing. And, you know, we've seen that in terms of how the Iranian regime has, has started to act. I mean, whether it's the, the, the raising of the enrichment levels, whether it's, um, you know, the, the, the tough approach towards UN inspectors, whether it's the seizing of South Korean vessels, uh, whether it's, you know, raising their activity in Syria and Yemen and strikes on, on Saudi interests and on U.S. interests in, in, in Erbil and that's in, in, in Iraqi Kurdistan. I mean, all of this stuff, it, you know, there's a whole host of other activity. I mean, Iranian proxies in surrounding Israel, for example. Um, you know, the, this kind of activity, it's, it's not a coincidence. You know, yeah. it's, it's a response to David, it's changes. interesting because yeah. the way you're, you're lining all this up, one would almost think that the, the mullahs in Tehran view Biden as somebody who they can easily uh, outmaneuver and push around. But we're always told by journalists here in America, and certainly by the Democrat Party, that things were great with the Iran nuclear deal and that we're, you know, Biden wants to return us to that framework. So shouldn't, you know, which is it? Are, are the Iranians... Uh, happy that Biden's in office because now there'll be the Iran nuclear deal and everything will go nicely and quietly, or do they realize this guy's a patsy? I mean, the, the Iranians are, uh, are ecstatic. You know, they don't, they don't say this, this, this openly too often, but there's absolutely no question that they would be deep in it if the Trump administration had continued. And really, the, the, the back was against the wall. I mean, their, their national strategic reserve had depleted from some 100 billion to closer to 4 billion. You know, their oil experts, economy, the oil exports, the economy was on the rope. Um, certainly, uh, uh, they had to roll back a lot of their regional adventurism and, and, and belligerence. I mean, they were in a tough spot. You know, the, the, the previous administration had taken them really to the brink. And, the, you know, the Biden administration coming in and and even just sort of indicating that there may be a rolling back and, and, and an easing of sanctions and things like that, um, you know, have really given air um, to the Iranian regime that was struggling to breathe for some time. And obviously, 
um, that comes with, with, with the freedom to, to, to continue all kinds of malign activities that the Iranians have been involved in. Is there an expectation that, that Israel is going to have to take a more unilateral approach to some of these Iranian uh, provocations, support of terrorism, uh, supporting all these different proxy militias and armies across the Middle East, because it, it can't count on the same kind of support from the Biden administration? I mean, you know, we, we often will hear from Democrats that support for the state of Israel is bipartisan. What do you make of that? Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Look, here's what we've heard, you know, from, from insiders who have been involved and have first-hand knowledge of the discussions that have taken place between the Israelis and the Americans vis-a-vis the Iranians. You know, they've tried to divide it into two separate issues. You've got the, the, the nuke deal, the JCPOA, and then you've got other issues like uh, Iranian proxy wars and intercontinental ballistic missile program and other things like that. Um, they, they definitely do say that in tone, the, the Biden administration is far more sympathetic to their concerns than the Obama administration. And they've expressed a willingness to work with the Israelis on some of these issues. Having said that, in terms of the Iran deal, which was obviously uh, the, the biggest issue for the Israelis, the prospect of Iranians going nuclear, they're hell-bent on returning to this deal, and it's going to happen no matter what. So what that does is, um, that puts the Israelis in a position where they feel like they've got to take care of things on their own, and they will. I mean, we have seen an incredibly aggressive shadow war, and the Israelis are likely to escalate it only. The more that they feel that their back's against the wall and that they can only rely on themselves, the more um, shadow military action we're going to see or covert um, military action you're going to see in the region. The Israelis are going to step it up big time. Given what we saw from reporting around John Kerry's discussions with uh, with Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran. Uh, first of all, what did, what did you think about all that now that we've had more time to digest those reports? And, and should we assume that the Biden administration will be willing to mortgage other foreign policy and perhaps even national security interests of Israel and of the U.S. in order to get this Iran deal back on track? 
I mean, so, so far what we're seeing between Biden administration and the Israelis is, is very firm differences of opinion, but we have not yet seen the, 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 the extreme breakdown of trust that we saw under the Obama administration. Um, it's true that, that, that what was reported regarding John Kerry was bad. It was really bad. Having said that, John Kerry's not involved in these talks right now. Right. And also what he was said to have revealed w wasn't a big secret. I mean, the, it can't have been news to the Iranians that they were being targeted in Syria. And, and, you know, they didn't think that it was, you know, the South Africans that were targeting them. They knew it was the Israelis. Um, so I don't think, you know, while that's worrying and, and obviously going to be concerning to many in Israel, it's probably not enough to, to precipitate that breakdown of trust that we saw under the Obama administration. So for now, you do have the coordination, you've got the correspondent, the, the channels are open and, it, and it's in an a, 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 a environment of mutual respect. Having said that, the Israelis understand that the Americans are committed to the JCPOA, which in their view means they're not committed to stopping the Iranians getting nukes. And therefore, They've got to they've got to handle that issue on their own, or maybe maybe with other allies. And and you know it's likely that we're going to see heightened activity um, to tr to try and make a dent and an impact on that front. David, always appreciate your expertise. Thanks for joining us. Always. We'll be right back with more. Hold the line. Stay with us. We're only four months into the Biden administration. The president's already got a very crowded agenda of issues on the domestic front, pandemic recovery, escalating border crisis and rising inflation. When it comes to foreign affairs, it seems the White House is not focused on the Middle East. Our next guest says Iran is not a priority for the Biden administration. So how should we deal with this continuing threat? Patrick Clausen, Morningstar Senior Fellow and Director of Research at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy joins me now. Patrick, good to see you. Good to be with you. How would you assess, I know we're very early here and often the foreign policy doctrine and all that takes longer to play out. How would you assess this early period of the Biden administration's response to and, and positioning vis-a-vis -vis Iran? The priority for the Biden administration is to improve relations with European allies and to refocus on Russia and China. And so, therefore, Biden has approached the nuclear negotiations with Iran as primarily a way to improve relations with the Iranians, excuse me, with the Europeans, to show that the United States is on the same side as they are, uh, and then not to pay too much attention to the issue. And, and that is indeed what's been happening. What do you make of the renewed focus that's on the Middle East in general right now because of what's going on between Israelis, uh, Israelis and Palestinians, Hamas and Israeli defense forces, and the Iranian hand behind some of this, certainly as it, as it relates to munitions and arming them. Is this going to refocus some of the Biden administration's attention on the issue? Uh, probably not. Uh, the Biden administration's going to almost certainly adopt the attitude that, uh, hey, the Israelis have the right to defend themselves when missiles are raining down upon them. And uh, other than that, uh, Biden will make some modest efforts to try and calm things down along with the Egyptians. Uh, but uh, um, there's not going to be any long-term resolution to this. I mean, frankly, this latest upburst in, in fighting between uh, Hamas and the Israelis is uh, kind of a posturing by both Hamas and by Bibi Netanyahu, each of 
them getting domestic political advantage out of this. And so we'll see how far it goes. What about the Iran nuclear deal and the Biden administration's hope to get back into it? Everyone expects that there'll be some effort to re-enter it. Are the Iranians going to make that an easy process? Do you think they might try to squeeze concessions out? And, and does that destabilize things? Do the Saudis and do other regional partners feel like you're in the deal, you're out of the deal, now you're back in the deal? What do you make of it? The Iranians certainly thought that Biden was going to return to the nuclear deal rising when he came into office, the way, same way he returned to the Paris Climate Accords. And that uh, did not happen. And so uh, the Iranians have been disappointed, and they have been trying to up the pressure on the United States in order to get the U.S. to return to the deal. So far, the Biden team says that their objectives are the same as the Trump objectives, namely a longer and stronger nuclear deal as a prelude to uh, a deal about uh, Iran's missile programs and about its regional activities. How the heck the Biden team thinks it's going to get that? I have no idea, and they have not been very clear about it. Uh, what they have been offering the Iranians so far is uh, backing off on the sanctions uh, in return for Iran making some uh, modest steps about nuclear matters, uh, but Iran is not offering to do anything uh, about the missiles or about its regional activities. What? And meanwhile, the Biden team has been running around the Middle East saying to the Saudis and the Israelis and others, look, don't worry, we got the same objectives as Trump did. So is there anything that really concerns you about the Biden administration approach compared to what had happened in the four years previously? There's a lot of people now who are talking about the, the Abraham Accords and, and bringing up what was done then versus what has been or what seems to be underway right now. It sounds to me, Patrick, like you're making a case that you think this is largely a, a continuation of a status quo. Well, but the Biden team is giving up a fair amount of the leverage that the United States had against against the Iranians. So the Biden team has turned a blind eye to the way in which uh, China is buying more and more oil from Iran. And since what Iran really wants out of the, out of uh, from the United States is to ease up on the ways in which the U.S. has been blocking Iran getting money for its oil exports. Uh, Iran's gotten a lot of what it wants already. And I don't particularly see why the Iranians are going to agree to any concessions uh, if they get what they want already. If we have the Biden administration keep its promise to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th of 2021, uh, the Iranians are right next door and they have had substantial interests in Afghanistan in the past. Do you think that they'll take an, an increased role and, and what will what will their positioning be vis-a-vis -vis an ascendant Taliban? Well, the Iranians have been remarkably incompetent for 20 years in Afghanistan, and I see no reason to think that's going to change. So while the Pakistanis have had a really deft hand in Afghanistan and have gotten a lot of what they want, uh, the Iranians have a long history of messing up in Afghanistan. And so I think that'll happen again. Now, the Iranians are trying to play footsie with the Taliban. Uh, and so far, the Taliban have uh, been taking advantage of the Iranians without giving the Iranians anything particular that they want. Now, if you had to give some advice to this Biden administration going forward about how to handle this and make sure that things don't heat up with regard to Iran, its proxies in the region, whether in Syria or in Yemen or Obviously, we've already seen some of that with Hamas. Uh, what would you want them to do? What should be the focus? 
I'd say learn from what you did that worked, which was the, your February 24th airstrike against uh, the Iranian positions uh, in Syria really got the Iranians to back off with their um, their proxy militias in, in Iraq attacking U.S. forces. And, and I'd say uh, there's a lesson here, which is if you can find smart ways to use force against the Iranians, uh, then you're going the Iranians will back off. Uh, and I would hope that if the uh, Iranians probe further, which I suspect they're going to, uh, the Houthis are talking about doing quite a lot more attacks against Saudi Arabia and even against Israel, uh, then I, I, the uh, Biden administration should learn from its success of its strike against uh, the Iranians in Syria. That does it for our special edition of Hold the Line here. Patrick Clausen, great to see you, man. Thank you so much for being with us in the Washington Institute. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Also want to thank all of our guests, David Ifoon, Jonathan Shanzer, Cash Patel, and of course, Patrick Lawson just now for shining a light on the looming threat of Iran, the challenges ahead, and what should be done. Have a great night, everybody. Shields high.